Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. Our government are meeting, well, Leo Radka and Michal Martin are meeting, uh, to form a new government, a new policy for government, with the possibility of a rotating Taoiseach. Yes, I think you've probably never heard of that before, but that's what they're going to do, which means they take turns. And essentially, their suggestion is that Michal Martin will be the first to take turns. And uh, he joins me on the line, Fianna Falls, Michal Martin, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Niall. Michal, well, firstly, I mean, a lot of people are commenting online saying... This is not a time or a place, you know, for political football, so to speak. And, you know, I, I know there's a lot of questions have to be answered. I know we had an election which seems like it was months ago. Mind you, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but yet they're saying this is not the time or the place. Leave things as they are for the moment. And sure, let's, let's get out of this first and then we can have the political fight. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm very conscious of the, of, the, of the fact that even as we speak, you know, there's close to 100 families, 98 families in the Republic who are mourning their, their, their loved ones. As a result of COVID-19, 36 in Northern Ireland, 134 in the island. Um, and that is the, the dominant issue, and that's the issue that's impacted on the lives of so many families uh, and friends in, in a very sad way. Uh, and it's also upended our entire society, as you've just been commenting there, in terms of a whole range of issues, um, with the social distancing, mm-hmm. with the lockdown, with half a million people out of work. Um, so this is a, an extraordinary global pandemic. And to be fair, I think all political leaders and all political parties have put aside party political differences to uh, focus on the COVID-19 issue over the last number of weeks and in particular to take the advice of the Chief Medical Officer and his team and also to, to make sure that there's sufficient resources for the health service executive, for the hospitals. But we, um, but we haven't really put aside our differences because Mary Lou and Sinn Féin are not really being mentioned in this forming a new government or government policy. No, I'm, I'm talking in the context of dealing with COVID. Yeah, but I mean, and I know, but we, we are saying we're putting aside political differences. And, you know, I had Mary Lou on the show last week and uh, this is when Leo had mentioned, of course, that, uh, you know, there was a suggestion that in the next few weeks we'd be forming a government and you were setting a framework for government yourself and, and, and Leo. And, you know, she wasn't obviously too pleased that she believed that 25% of the population went out there and decided they wanted to vote for Sinn Féin and they got a third of the seats. And, and realistically, why are they not being included? Because many of the suggestions they've had in relation to policies over COVID-19, including social welfare payments, etc., etc., have been implemented by government because, of course, government are working together. We understand that. I but you, there were everybody's policies, no, Niall. I mean, um, basically, when COVID hit uh, and you had the dramatic impact on, on, on hospitality, for example, um, and, and travel, uh, so restaurants, hotels, and so on like that. So everybody knew we were going to hit, get an immediate hit. And economists generally you saw David McWilliams' point about helicopter money. The, the general view was that you needed to pump prime the economy right now and that European Union would back that through the European Central Bank. So that's not exclusively the policy of any one political party, if we are honest. But it, it, it is unprecedented. So yes, the Doyle collectively supported the COVID-19 uh, uh, payment, for example, for workers who've lost their jobs, and critically also the wage subsidy scheme, uh, which hopefully will tie and keep workers tied to employers or so that the, the, the particular enterprises, so, so that those enterprises could start up once the worst of COVID-19 is over. And, uh, and I think everybody and, agrees and, with the investment in the future, and, yes. Actually, that was passed by last Thursday week and last Thursday measures to... But, you know, but that, but in, but that, Michal, that wasn't initially passed. Initially, it was a, t- a payment of €203 Euro by Regina Doherty. But, but the way I have to say, it was doing a sterling job at the moment. But initially, that was €203. Euro. It was only when Pierce Doherty and Mary Lou said, look, uh, this should be 70 or 80% of the wage, similar to the UK, that, of course, well, we, actually, ch- we changed tax. <laughs> Michael McGrath and Robert Troy wrote as well on that very actually ahead of us, but I'm not acting a role about that. I mean, we were out, and within a week, 
uh, it was changed. But a, a day after the, the, the first payment was announced by the government, we said that wasn't enough. Um, it is unique, by the way. It's, it's, it's unprecedented. Well, of course. I mean, these are uncharted territory. I, mean, I, accept, I accept that. But how do you feel yourself in relation to you getting the first crack of the whip, pardon well, the pun? I mean, I, that that if we do have, you know, a rotating Taoiseach, that you would be the first one in there. Has that is that a definite? Has that been suggested or is that agreed by both of you? Because a lot of people say, well, hold on, let Leo finish the job that he started here, uh, which is this, unfortunately, this pandemic and this situation we're in yeah. until we decide to do that. Well, I think the first thing is that there would have to be an agreed program for government. I mean, nothing can happen unless that happens. And we've had a lot of general discussions with, with various parties for the last number of weeks. Then COVID-19 intervened and, and, and dominated the situation, as I said. But I think we need a, a, a radical agenda. We need a new social contract in terms of a, a single-tier health system. In my view, there's an opportunity you know, to do that, arising out of what's happening in terms of COVID-19. I think there's an opportunity on the housing front now. I think you're getting me wrong. I don't, I don't believe you shouldn't have a shot at the title, so to speak, because I've said it all oh, along no. for the last two years that I would like to see you get, give, be given an opportunity to prove yourself yeah. uh, because you've been there for a long time and you've proven yourself. But all I'm saying, you know, the time and the place, and we've talked about that, and I don't want to go over old ground again, yeah. but maybe people are saying it's going to take us six months estimated to, before we start to get into some level of recovery. But in relation to recovery, I mean, we've talked about, and I'll come back to the pandemic in a second and the effect that's having on the general population, but in relation to the economy, I mean, the estimates at the moment are, are in and around the 30 billion mark. I mean, and that's yeah. a possibility with the, the lack of revenue coming into the state as well. Is it, does it look like we're going to have to have a supplementary benefit, uh, budget as well? I think your estimates are correct. Uh, I think it is very, very serious. Uh, at the moment, we won't need um, a supplementary budget. There might be something needed. Um, I think in the autumn, obviously, there's a normal budget. I think deficit, what you're going is you're going to go from a surplus of about 2.8 billion um, the central bank are saying it could go to 22 billion, uh, but they're only basing that on a three-month sort of containment period with COVID. I think you might be your figures might be more correct in terms. Well, of well we have to take into consideration the lack of money coming into the revenue. The March, exactly. March exactly. this year to March last year, one billion alone yeah. uh, less coming cap- into the revenue, and that didn't capture, the, I think, the full impact of COVID yet on revenue. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. Joining me on the line is Sinn Féin President Mary Lou MacDonald. Good afternoon to you, Mary. How are you? Not a good day today, is it really, I suppose, for the electorate? I mean, look, I mean, they're, they're now calling it Fianna Gael instead of Fine Gael. And, you know, I know I watched your video there the, uh, last night and I know you're deeply disappointed that democracy really hasn't come true. Clearly you believe democracy hasn't been served with only 51% of the population probably happy in relation to this. But, I mean, there's an argument there that you didn't do enough, Mary, to stop it from happening. Well, look, I am disappointed in that we got a very strong mandate from the electorate to get into government and to lead a government of change, and I'm disappointed that wasn't possible. Don't accept that we we didn't do enough. I mean, on the day of the election count, as the votes literally were physically being counted, I began reaching out to other parties, and we've continued, Neil, to speak to people up until, I mean, literally last week, and we are still, our door is still open, in the event that something changes, the circumstances change. But, but change, you, but yeah, but Mary, but Mary, last night you referred to the political establishment and you use those words quite a lot, right? Constantly yes. you use those words. But you seem to ignore the fact that the Social Democrats and people before profit and all those people who wouldn't do business with you either um, are all part of that political establishment as well. Well, the, the other parties that you mentioned did do business with us. 
I mean, just be very clear in your listeners, just so as everybody has the facts, we met with everybody who would meet with us. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael decided from the get-go that they would come together, that they would join forces to keep Sinn Féin, and more importantly, to keep any change out. That has been their objective. But they That's watched you do that first. That was their strategy, but, Mary. They watched you do that first. From the day after the election, you know, you contacted the party leaders across the board. You yes. know, you had Pierce as the negotiator, I know, and a good man too to have there at the helm. But they watched you do that and fail. And then they did exactly the same thing and we see the, result, the end result of that. They've succeeded. So they wa- well, that was their strategy to watch you do well, it. Well, look, Look, whatever people's views, one way or the other, about different party strategies, let me let me just say very clearly what our position is. I don't imagine for a second that we have some special God-given right to be in government. That's not true. We have a very strong mandate, and I have a duty to deliver on housing, on health, and all of the things that matter to people. But what actually happened here um, is not so much that like-minded parties came together, what, what happened here is uh, an extraordinary thing in Irish political life. They came together specifically and deliberately to keep us out. I, I mean, look, I, I know you would have been prepared for a second election, and, and maybe Leo might have been after the Ipsos MRBI poll show that Sinn Féin at 25%, Fine Gael is up exponentially, and personal satisfaction, yeah. Leo, has shot up, obviously, during COVID-19. So maybe he might have preferred a second election. Um, would you have preferred a second election? I just don't think, it's not really a question of what what I, I or anybody else would have preferred. I just don't think a, a second election is on now, um, given that we're in, in the grip of a global pandemic. Well, if we can go to pennies, we can go to it, we can vote at a polling station. I'm sure we could have worked it out. It's not just the casting of the votes, it's the counting of the votes. It's how would you canvas? How do you go out and have conversations with people on their doorstep in in these circumstances. But, I think that's difficult and problematic. But if there's but is that but is this not hurting you at, at a personal level, sorry Mary for interrupting yeah. you, but does this not eat you up at the core that Sinn Vein voters out there believe I know I don't personally believe it, but some of them and I've seen some of the comments online that you bowed out too quickly, that you've kind of that Sinn Fein have let them down because look, they voted for you. In their droves yeah. they voted for you. This is not democracy is what they're saying. And they kind of feel a little bit let down that maybe you and Pierce didn't fight hard enough. Well, we, we fought hard. We fought very, very hard. And I, I, I'm disappointed too. And I know because people have been in, in huge numbers in touch with me and with Pierce and with others to say that they're disappointed, to say that they're angry. And all of that is legitimate. But I would just say to everybody concerned, whatever about being fed up now, please don't give up. We don't want people to just bow bow out of, of change. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi award winning Niall Boylan show. Classic hits to get through today, including, by the way, it seems that Brexit is a complete and utter dog's mess at the moment. Uh, the Tories just challenging everything that's possible to challenge. And of course, as we know, Theresa May has already signed up to a backstop deal. Can't get out of it now. And it looks like people are not happy. But a brand new party, the Brexit Party, well, they claim they have raised over a million in three weeks. And it's backed by Nigel Farage. And basically, he says that uh, he is backing this because if they're threatened uh, or they want to threaten to challenge the Tories if they sell out Brexit. And Nigel is on the line. Uh, Nigel Farage, good afternoon to you. 
Good afternoon. Nigel, I mean, this is just a mess. We've got companies like Sony, we've got Panasonic, we've got Dyson, all abandoning Britain. Is it because of Brexit <laughs> or is it because of the uncertainty that the Tories have created? Well, there's certainly uncertainty, and you're quite right to say that. I mean, we're two and a half years after the vote, and do you know how much we've agreed so far? Well, let's try about zero, shall we? Well, I so, did watch yeah. Parliament the other night. It was like a Christmas pantomime. It was exciting to watch. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I did yeah, get the popcorn out for that one. <laughs> yeah, it was good entertainment, wasn't it? But, yeah, but, uh, but no, it's not, people... Nigel, on a serious note, it's not entertaining for the British people where they don't really know what their future is. I mean, you were there in 2015 when David Cameron wouldn't back down, and a lot of people felt, and I'm not trying to criticise you, Nigel, but when they're kind of, you know what, hit the fan and Brexit was voted for, unanimously, of course, and there was democracy, but, you know, you were gone. You know what I mean? No, I no, 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 no. I volunteered to help. You know, I said to the government, I want to help with the Brexit process over in Brussels and around, and, and around the rest of Europe. Um, I, I have made it very clear. I didn't want any payment. didn't need a title. I wanted to be part of the team to help deliver it, and my services weren't wanted. And what we've actually seen is a British Prime Minister take over, bizarrely, who herself didn't vote for Brexit, who still doesn't really believe in Brexit, to give it all to a civil servant called Ollie Robbins to negotiate. Uh, and and we've, we've, we've finished up with, on the table, a deal that is what I would call a Remainer's Brexit. So, yes, it is a dog's dinner because of a very, very weak sense. But, you, but she was handed a poison chalice. I mean, no matter what she did, it wasn't going to be the right thing. The Tories were never going to agree with anything anyway. So she had a poison chalice. I mean, there's no way she could... I mean, she ran to Europe, of course, to sign up for the backstop as soon as it was mentioned oh. by Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney. And now she can't get out of that deal. Well, that was an absolute catastrophe. She signed up to something that, that no leader would sign up to unless you'd literally been defeated militarily in war. I mean, to sign up to something that you can't get out of, that could leave you permanently trapped inside the EU's rules, uh, was just a catastrophic error. And can I say, wholly unnecessary in every Well, unnecessary in way. your eyes, but obviously in Leo Varadkar's and Simon Coveney's eyes, it was completely necessary because the question must be asked, Nigel, do you actually care about the Irish people, both Northern Irish and Republic of Ireland? Because I don't know what's well, going to happen. I mean, if we if they go out, you know, in 50-whatever days' time and there's a no-deal Brexit and we end up on a border in Northern Ireland, are we going to see the German troops standing on the border, the EU coalition well, army? Well, I think it's very interesting to ask the question that who has Mr. Varadkar been working for? Has he been working in the interests of, of the Republic of Ireland? Or has he been doing the bidding of Mr. Barnier and Mr. Juncker and the bureaucrats in Brussels? The one thing that an Irish leader should have been doing from day one is arguing for a continuation of trade on a tariff-free basis. And he should have done that because if we do move to tariff, particularly on agricultural products, it's Irish farmers that are going to get hurt worse than any other group in the whole of Europe. Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. Do you agree with Barry Cowan losing his position as Minister for Agriculture? Based on everything you know, based on the fact it was 2016, based on the fact that he already got his punishment, and based on the fact over the last two weeks he's been ridiculed. Do you agree with him being sacked now and losing his position? Let me know what you think. The number is 087-188-0008. But first, uh, I want to go to Pierce Doherty uh, from Sinn Féin, Deputy Leader and Spokesperson for Finance. Good afternoon to you. 
Yeah, uh, Pierce. Good I mean, I know Mary Lou is now questioning why Michal Martin suddenly changed his mind. This is almost like an episode of Carnation Street last night. I mean, the, the, the drama unfolding of Michal sacking him, then Barry at half past nine going on to Twitter uh, with a full account and statement of what he believes is accurate news. I mean, realistically, why do you think he changed his mind? Oh, God only knows. You know, um, what we had is a, a situation, and we know the facts as, as we know them, is that the teacher knew about uh, the alleged uh, pulse file, uh, which alleged that Barry Cowan tried to evade a guard at the checkpoint, which which he denies. Yeah, yeah, but he but the teacher knew of that allegation uh, over ten days ago. The teacher had seen the actual record yesterday morning and had discussed it. It was, it it was handed to him by Barry Cowan yesterday morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he'd seen the physical record of it, but he knew it over a week before that. Uh, and he stood in the doll and he defended Barry Cowan. Not only that, um, you know, and that was yesterday during, at two o'clock from, uh, during leaders' questions, from questioning from Mary Lou McDonald. But not only that, probably more significant in my view is that, um, you know, Barry Cowan, came to the doll, made a fulsome apology and all the rest. We discussed this on the, on the show last week. Um, and, uh, you know, we thought that that was all the information that was there. He said that drip feeding of information was damaging. That's why he wanted to put everything on the record. He went far as back as talking about non-display of tax disks. But while he was given that information, he knew, as did the teacher know, knew, knew that there was an allegation of a very serious issue, which was uh, a failure to, to stop at the guard at the checkpoint. Uh, the fact or do a U-turn, as, as, as suggested. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so the fact that the, the teacher allowed Barry Cowan to make an incomplete statement in the doll, the fact that he didn't challenge him for over a week, it raises serious questions. But, do you, but I mean, do you, I'm asking, do you believe Barry? Because I, I kind of, I don't always believe politicians, right? <laughs> We've learned that yeah. throughout the years. But I, I would be of the belief that he's telling the truth in relation to that, because if indeed, as he says himself, he did do a U-turn or tried to evade on Garda Shea I would imagine he would have had more serious charges against him than just the ban and the fine. So I think a Garda Shea would have taken that and would have taken a very dim view of him trying to evade him. So I, I, I can't understand why he would have only got the fine and the ban. Yeah, I, I don't know, and we need to see the actual record to see what was there. Was it a case that he, you know, I, I wouldn't even want to speculate to tell you the guts on the truth. And I, and, and I mean, he's got a fair bit of flack, Pierce, over the last two weeks. I mean, I mean, as, as Pat Buckley, uh, your own man from Sinn Féin, has he got the same amount of flack? I don't think he has. No, I know he's not. I know he's not a minister. I understand that. But, the, 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 but also the difference. Remember this here. Before Park Buckley was even up in court, he says, "No matter what happens, I'm putting my hands up. I, I went behind the wheel. It was my choice. It was completely wrong." Uh, and he sincerely apologised. And, and I know it. some of the papers ran this. I know he's never, he's never okay. driven since. I know. I know you some know. of the papers ran this as some sort of exclusive last week, whereas the Irish Examiner actually had it at the time, which it, so it wasn't exclusive. It was carried in RTE, and he did local radio and all the rest. And he put his hands up, and he hasn't driven since. As I said, I. I genuinely believe that the Irish public's fair, and I, I believe that politicians should come from all walks of life, which means that it's not a case of whiter than white. We'll make mistakes like everybody else, but it's always the lack of being fully transparent that is the problem here. So, you know, I, I think if Barry Cowan went and said, look, there's allegations there, but I'm contesting those allegations, that would have been the issue. That would have been probably a dip. There would have been other questions, but it wouldn't be as, as bad as what has happened now, which is that he came before the doll. He, he but is, is Barry Cowan not suggesting yeah, but is he not suggesting that he didn't know what was on Pulse, that he no, wasn't he, aware that this was on Pulse, that he tried to evade on Garda Khan at the time, and that, that now, obviously, he's questioning this with Garda Khan, who are now going to investigate no, the matter. Barry Cowan made a statement on Tuesday night uh, last week. Barry Cowan and the T-shirt the weekend before that uh, discussed this matter 
and discuss the allegation that he actually tried to evade a guard at the checkpoint. So both men knew that that allegation was there. It came from the media. Uh, they knew that and they kept that from the public. They kept that from the doll. And that's the issue. That's the issue. The, the reality is, and what this smells like, is that the teacher was happy enough to let this ride. The teacher was happy enough to say nothing. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. Labour councillors have expressed concerns after Sinn Féin's John Coslow called to angle grind the royal insignia of Ireland's post boxes. This is during a debate at the Metropolitan District on the condition of some of the mailboxes. The Northside councillor tried to broaden the debate and said some of the insignia needs to be removed. We're no longer under British rule. And he joins me on the line. Good afternoon to you, John. Good afternoon, Niall, and good afternoon to your listeners. Okay, now, John, what was the context of the particular debate? And th- this was obviously a debate about the, the state of the post boxes initially, was it? Yes, Niall. Um, a Fine Gael Council had a motion in that we should um, maintain and restore the post boxes. I fully agree with maintaining the post yeah, boxes. Yeah, some of them are in bits now, in fairness. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're in a deplorable state in terms of our condition, broken doors and paint, and actually horrible. And so. I want to expand the debate, and um, I just had a, a mere suggestion that we remove the British insignia on the post boxes. Why were they on our post boxes on our main thoroughfare? Well, when you, when you, you now, John, come on, you remember Sinn Fein? You know why the British insignia is on the post boxes because they're there since I suppose the first Irish government in 1922. You know they didn't really want to flex their independent muscles and spend any money, so they decided instead an Irish solution to an Irish problem. Instead of getting new post boxes, we'll just paint the red ones green, and, that, yes, and that's these, what they did. These are the property of Unpost. Why have we got a farm motif on? Because they're there since nineteen, they're there since the early part of the the last century. But it doesn't mean it's right now, and they're on our main thoroughfare. So, yeah, but, um, but we've got we've got buildings all over the country which have remnants of Britain. You know, we've got granite. You know, kind of royal insignia on places like the RDS and the Royal College of Surgeons, the Bank of Ireland, the Ear Hospital, the Customs House. By the way, the Doll. All a lot of these yeah. buildings, by the way, have royal insignia on you. You don't think we should go around to them all and remove every bit of it? But no, um, I think one of the reasons why the post didn't. Um show any interest in restoring these because that was probably one of the reasons why would we restore the British monarchy on our, on our post boxes. You might not like it and I get that. I understand you're a Republican and etc, etc. You want a united Ireland. I, we get into that in a second, right? But, I mean, this goes back to pulling down statues and all this kind of erasing history. It, you know, it's all part of our history. Do you not think it, you know, we should recognise it as just part of our history? Like, I spent nearly 14 months uh, with Debenhams on outside Rochester stores, which is uh, Debenhams, okay? Yeah. And that post box is right there. And like every day, people are just looking at it and they're saying to me, it's in a terrible condition, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, but they were looking at, yeah, they're looking at the condition of it. People aren't looking at them going, Jesus, look at that. It has the royal insignia on it. That turns me stomach. Most people aren't thinking like that. You might be thinking like that, John. Most people aren't <laughs> thinking like that. No, you're, you're probably right there now, but it has come across, I've been um, opposed by many people on that. No, no, at the end of the day, within metres of that post box, there are homeless action groups giving out food and blankets and clothes mm-hmm. every month. So it just goes to show you that our priorities are totally wrong in the council. 
when, when, when no, I, I, I'm not. Di- I'm not disagreeing with that aspect of it. You're missing the point, John. I don't agree with the idea that we should be dicking them up, and I'm supposed to have a responsibility to do that and to make sure they're in good condition. That the the wording on the front when the next you know mail drop is due is legible, all that kind of stuff, particularly yeah. for older people or for blind to have braille on it or whatever. I I completely agree. All that needs to be done, and those old traditional post boxes that you talk about with the emblem on it, they need to be painted. They, some of them actually you can still see the red the red paint from 1922 is showing through on them but the green has gone so bad on them so I, I'm not disagreeing with that but what I'm saying is you want to remove the insignia and I'm saying no leave it there it's part of our history just like the Royal Victoria Hospital just like the Bank of Ireland just like you know the Fusiliers Arch or you know a Wellington Monument or the, should the English Marketing Cork should we change the name of that while we're at it I mean where do you stop when you start going down that route <laughs> Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. The one thing, by the way, that uh, I will say is, and the one negative thing that has come out of the coronavirus is there are many, many stories that are happening around the world. There's still wars going on. There's still people being murdered. There's still people dying. There's still domestic violence. There's still rape. Um, there's still people being abused and none more so of course than the report that's come out in the last few days and child sexual abuse was tolerated at the highest levels of former scouting organisations with the crimes of those who preyed on children covered up to protect the reputation of the movement a damning report has just concluded this and there is evidence that groups of six offenders operated at the top of Scouting Ireland's legacy organisations to protect each other and facilitate child abuse and this is according to a report by a child protection expert, Ian Elliott. Uh, The government is to consider the findings of the report and decide whether a statutory inquiry into historic abuse may be required. However, there are concerns over whether such an inquiry would be able to uncover substantially more information according to sources. Now, just to be clear by the way, this report doesn't mean that anybody should be held culpable criminally because it's only a report. For that, you would have to have a criminal trial, I suppose. Uh, there has been many criminal trials, by the way, in relation to different people who have been sexually abused. We will talk to one of those victims a little bit later on. But Scouting Ireland made a full organisa- organisational apology on foot of the report's publication on Thursday. And the historic abuse uh, relates to the Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland and the Scout Association of Ireland, which merged to form Scouting Ireland back in 2004. The report said that one of the legacy bodies was a seriously dysfunctional organisation with sex offenders dominating the leadership for decades. This is almost like when I went back to, when I was working on radio back in um, 2001 on another radio station and the reports were coming out, the Ryan Report, the Murphy Report, the Cloyne Report, all in relation to the Catholic Church. And this is more or less a similar situation we have now in relation to Scouting Ireland and I suppose people who had access to young children. And it's a shocking, shocking, shocking story. If you get a chance, try to read the report and what seemed to be rampant. Now, one in four, a charity for survivors of child sexual abuse, said efforts should be made to bring perpetrators of such abuse to justice. And they join me on the line, Deirdre Kenny who's the Deputy CEO and the Advocacy Director of One and Four, the Charity for Child Sexual Abuse, joins me. Good afternoon to you, Deirdre. Good morning, or good afternoon. How are you doing? This is reminiscent. When I was working on radio back in 2001 and we had the Cloyne and the Murphy and all the different reports, the Ryan Report, all the different reports that we had in relation to child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church, and here we, are, here we are again. You know, we thought that kind of stuff could never happen. Mind you, I know a lot of this is historical, uh, but we didn't think we'd be seeing more of this. I mean, it is a shocking report. I have to say, I thought the same thing yesterday when I read the report. It's um, it, it definitely echoes very similar 
I suppose, chapters that we would have read in both the Murphy and Klein and Ryan reports. Um, mm. But it's it's there's something about this that seems quite devastating um, in terms of the serial offending that went on at the hands of people in power in the organisations that are reviewed in, in the in the report. And see, maybe for younger people today, they won't understand, I suppose, the legacy that went with this. I mean, I was in the Cubs. I'm 56. I was in the Cubs. And I remember I didn't like it, so I never went down to the Scouts. But my mother, or, or sorry, I remember all my friends, they were all in the Scouts. And in those days, they went off on retreats and they went off on weekends. And um, it just seems that many children were sexually abused. And similar to the Catholic Church, it was a case of if, they, if a complaint was made about a scout leader, predominantly male scout leaders, if a, if a complaint was made, he was just moved to another part of the organisation or just moved somewhere else. That certainly seems to be the case. And the learning review highlights, I suppose, the cronyism, as it calls it, that went on in the higher ranks of the organisation. And it really outlined how children were not put first and how the reputations and the disclosures made were protected by both um, serial offenders, but also by non-offending people in the organisation. Now, there were good people in the organisations that that tried to bring these issues to the fore, but were put under pressure not to do so. Um, So it's, it's quite hard to, I suppose, understand now when you look back, but what we have to keep in mind is the hundreds of people who were impacted by this behaviour and that the report being published yesterday will bring again to the fore their trauma. Um, and I think it's really important that that's recognised and survivors have come out and called for the uh, statutory inquiry. And I guess that's really this report, while it details the dysfunction of the organisation, it doesn't detail the the incidences of abuse or um, the harm that was caused in in maybe in a way that that other reports have. So I can completely understand their need to have a statutory inquiry. I mean, when when I look back, you know, at fifty six years of age, when we talk about the Catholic Church, by the way, and we talk about Scouting Ireland now and, and these organisations, these legacy organisations that would have been involved in the Cubs and the Scouts and the Girl Guides and <clears throat> everything else, and all these other organisations that would have had a lot of access to children. And particularly, I suppose, the Catholic Church, because they had the power as well. I mean, that a, lot of the, a lot of this is to do with power, too, that you would have that authority or figure of authority that we would never in a million years accuse of doing something wrong. But there was always a sense, and I don't know, I don't want to ask your age, but, but there was always a sense in those days, back in the 70s, um, that everybody knew what was going on, but nobody ever said anything. And I find that almost even myself that you know we knew as kids oh he's a bit dodgy you know what I mean oh, don't stand too close to him and all that kind of stuff was said about people but nobody ever really took it seriously and I think now in 2020 I don't know why people didn't take that seriously now some people did and made complaints but as you rightly said you know there was uh, cronyism and you know sure people said ah sure he wouldn't do that or just stop for God's sake don't dare complain about him he's a pillar of society and these people were pillars of society they were. And, and what made them pillars of society was the silence that was around them about their behaviour. I think it's really important to acknowledge, doesn't matter what organisation it is and, or what time frame we're talking about, sexual abuse in society generally, um, it, it propels shame and guilt on the part of the victim, which creates a silence. And there establishes that really, really innate power dynamic. And that gets spread throughout communities, throughout families, it's the same dynamic. If we, we the work we do now is um, more with families than it's ever been, and it's a very similar dynamic. 
um, where there's secrecy and shame and guilt, there will be silence. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. Now, the Foreign Affairs Minister, who has a trail worn out at this stage to the Oireachtas Committee, uh, is there again over the controversial champagne party. Now, of course, this is not unique. The same thing is happening in the UK at the moment with Boris Johnson, more or less. And the news follows weeks of controversy over the gathering of Depar- the Department of Foreign Affairs staff and at the centre of it all, of course, is Simon Coveney, who was also at the centre of Marion Gate as well, held in the aftermath of Ireland's winning the seat on the UN Security Council. To join me and to give me a little bit more information on what his feelings on it is, Patter Tobin from AIM2, uh, leader of AIM2. Good afternoon to you, Patter. Good afternoon. Uh, Patter, I mean, look, you know, Simon seems to have a trail warrant to the Oireachtas Committee at this stage, you know. I mean, obviously, he was there for Marion Gate. He's now there again in relation to this party. He says he didn't attend the party at the, you know, the Ivy House, but uh, because it was a strict lockdown in place at the time, but he did attend the office and people seemed to be working when he was there. Yeah, this is a, 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 an incredible situation. So the context of this is that this uh, party happened at a time when tens of thousands of ordinary people were being sanctioned uh, for COVID breaches. So I put in a parliamentary question uh, in June of last year, and that found out that over 40,000 people at that stage had been fined by the state for breaching uh, COVID regulations. We also know that people have been sent to jail uh, for breaching the, the COVID regulations, and a woman was sent to jail before Christmas for not wearing a mask, for example. That's right, yes. We, we know of a priest who was actually fined for saying mass. Uh, uh, during that period of time. Uh, and we also know that you know, the restrictions were phenomenally draconian on families, especially families who are burying their loved ones. So this so, would have been at a time where we would have had the E5 and 10K rules, etc., etc. Yeah. Exa- exactly, yeah. and people were, were, were burying their, 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 their mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. Now, they did put, they put a picture up, of course. This is how this all started. There was a picture yeah. of them all. who They seemed to be all enjoying themselves um, with their champagne, etc., etc. They're, they're saying, or their argument was it wasn't a planned event, although the drink had to come from somewhere. So somebody did. You don't just arrive into work with a load of drink. So uh, it clearly was planned to some extent. But I suppose Michal Martin dismissed it two weeks ago and said, well, that'll be the end of, the, the, the end of it. We're not going to be talking anymore about it. But I suppose in the wake of what's happening in the UK with Boris Johnson now, you know, Simon Coveney obviously feels he needs to answer, answer questions to the Oireachtas Committee. And this is an incredible situation. It shows the hypocrisy at the heart of the political establishment, first and foremost, that there's a two-tier society, one tier for the ordinary citizens of this country that have to obey the restrictions, if not get fined or potentially go to jail, and another tier for the ruling class of this country that can have a champagne party in the, in, in the middle of it all. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic hits. COVID-19, gosh, I'm so looking forward to the day that I can come on the air and not say those words. COVID-19, virus, flatten the curve. Oh, unprecedented times, or Stephen Donnelly's favourite line, uh, tipping point. That's a good one, isn't it? We're we're so so looking forward to those times. Well, where are we going with COVID-19? It doesn't seem we're going anywhere at the moment. And, of course, uh, Michal Martin said, obviously, he will take to the steps, make an announcement in relation to April the 5th. Most likely that announcement will probably be just before Easter weekend. 
I'm predicting it maybe on the Thursday rather than the Friday because that would be Good Friday. And I'm going to make a little bit of a prediction, although they're suggesting they may extend the 5K to 10K. I think the other little prediction was there might be a little bit of a, a green shoot in there, maybe a little bit of gaslighting to the Christians of the country. He might suggest, or he may suggest, uh, that people are allowed to go to Mass on Easter Sunday. That might be a little bit of a gaslight, you know what I mean? Because that's what they like to do every now and again. Um, so uh, that's just my prediction, by the way. One man who believes there really isn't a plan is the former Minister for Justice, former Tarnished, and uh, Senator Michael McDool, who uh, joins me on the line. Michael, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Niall. Michael, I mean, the, I'm looking at the Irish Times piece here, and I know you were on the radio this morning, and you say there isn't a plan at the moment, or you don't see the plan there. They suggest there is a plan, and their plan is living with COVID, not going down the zero COVID route, but you don't see it like that. Well, I mean, I don't think zero COVID is feasible and uh, living with COVID is something that we're going to have to do unless it is eradicated uh, completely, which we can't do. And um, bearing in mind that we are uh, now um, effectively one year in in economic lockdown with a few uh, patches in between, I think we have to have uh, some structured idea as to how we get out of this. And the point I was making in the article now is this. I mean... We've just said, you know, that uh, 85-year-olds and 80-year-olds are to be vaccinated and they are, will be vaccinated in a couple of weeks and then it'll be 70-year-olds and then perhaps it'll be 60-year-olds. At what point do we decide, right, we have the vulnerable, people who are uh, on age grounds vulnerable and people who, due to underlying conditions, are, are vulnerable, all of them are vaccinated. At what point do we say, right, that's it, there is a risk. We haven't eradicated it completely, but the economy has to open up. Are we over-focused, though? Because I did hear an interview yesterday, and I did hear Sam McConkey talking to you this morning, and I know yeah. you, you put it to him as well in relation to this exaggerated risk. And I, I'm, not, it's, I'm not taking away from the fact that some people have died of COVID-19, but are we exaggerating the risk in the sense that I heard an interview with somebody from a care home the other day, and they were saying, well, even when everybody's vaccinated, we've noticed that less elderly people, say, have got the flu in the last six months, according to the HS See, by the way, there has been no cases of the flu reported at all, which I find strange considering we have a friend here who has CF who has been in hospital with the flu, but now and ever. Um, so, in other words, that we're saying that we have to then go, going forward, the suggestion was in care homes that we're always going to have to have PPE and restricted visits and all this kind of thing, that we've, we're basically changing the world to what we might be an exaggerated risk, according to Professor John Lee, pathologist in the UK, who suggests, say, for the under 60, there's very little risk anyway. And he also suggests that, you know, just two in every thousand die from COVID-19 who actually contract it, uh, which is a much lower mortality rate than we would have thought it was this time last year. And that we're uh, in the UK alone, they're losing a half a billion a day to the economy, which in turn costs lives. Well, I mean, that, that's a very good point. I mean, I, I don't want to sort of say that nobody's life matters or that uh, anybody's life is expendable. But in the last analysis, we don't close down road traffic because people die in, road, in car crashes. And we know statistically that in any given year, 200 people uh, will die in, 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 in road traffic accidents. And we have to make a decision at some stage as to whether Ireland as a society and it's an economy and a society, whether it can actually sustain, um, uh, you know, a a, a permanent lockdown, kind of being frozen economically and socially uh, against the risk that uh, one in a thousand persons who gets infected will die. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits.